0: Well, hello and welcome to Matchroom HQ. Scott Hamilton here from the Matchroom team and Happy New Year to you all. It's the first time I've been back at HQ this year. I'm delighted to be joined by the legend, Mike Costello. Mike, how are you, mate?
1: Good to see you reading the script, Scott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll uh,
0: put the roles reversed this time around. Did you have a good uh, Christmas and New Year?
1: Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, on the back of getting home in time from the day of reckoning, everybody was a bit nervous about whether they would catch the flight in time with you know various warnings of bad weather in and around Europe and beyond. But yeah, it was um, a great way to finish the year and had a lovely break at home with family at Christmas and New Year time. So ready for what should be a very, very special year in boxing.
0: Good to hear. Um, am I right by thinking you was on the, the Chartered zone flight back? Yes. How was that? It was like a school journey. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Just, I
1: mean, when you think the, the main event um, didn't walk until something like 2 o'clock in the morning local time to suit UK audiences in the main... By the time that fight was wrapped up and, and all the media obligations after that, we didn't leave the arena until 3.30, 4am for what was an 8am flight um, and we were taken to a special departure lounge virtually straight from the venue. We did stop off at the hotel to pick up our luggage but then straight on to the airport and it was... Um, yeah, Two or three coach loads of DAZN staff and various TNT staff commentators and and all sorts of backup personnel and it was um, it was a really good atmosphere all the way back from from the venue and and one of the reasons was it had been such a such a good night of boxing but yeah it was um, one of those strange situations where at like six o'clock in the morning there's 150 200 people sat around in this departure lounge just waiting for the the nod to to get on board but. In the end I think everybody was just, just pleased that it, it took off on time and we all got back in the end to Heathrow at about lunchtime on Christmas Eve which was the promise um, and there were one or two people who, who pulled out because they feared not getting back to their family in time for Christmas because as, as you know the, the date for the Day of Reckoning was, was put together and the bill was put together at such late notice but, but a great trip, memorable trip in, in a number of ways.
0: I'm glad you said school trip then. I was thinking more stag in my head. So it um, <laughs> doesn't appear that I've missed out too much. So uh, that's great. And we was only an hour or two behind you on a, another early flight from, uh, from Riyadh into Heathrow as well. Now, let's talk about that reckoning. Although we didn't cross paths in, uh, in Saudi, it was quite a busy couple of days over there. I mean, just some event overall.
1: Yeah, it was. And in terms of what happened beforehand and in the organisation, and you look at the names down the bill, then it was very special. But there have been discussions, and and it did, I wouldn't say surprise me, but but it did strike me that something that was missing was the crowd engagement. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's no question about that. And I I don't know, having you know never earned a penny as a promoter, what the answer is, but clearly one of the issues is is main events at, at two o'clock in the morning, and and how how do you get away from there, and are you only ever going to be marketing that? To a Saudi audience, and we've seen in, in cases in the Saudi Pro League, which is also on the zone, how that zest for live action has diminished over time. So it, it's going to take some work to build that vital element. and let, let's not kid ourselves here. Yes, I understand that the fighters are earning money that they couldn't get anywhere else in the world, whether it's Las Vegas or Madison Square Garden or here in the UK on pay-per-view, I understand all of that, and who doesn't want the fighters to be earning monumental sums? But from our point of view, and I'm not just talking now from a media point of view, I'm talking about from a fan's point of view, and I'm talking about also from the the television viewer's point of view also. I mean, we're talking less than 24 hours after that great darts final here, and, and how much the crowd is a part of every bit of that event And it's not just in in dance. Boxing crowds are so, so special. We, We were talking when we were recording our review of the year about that atmosphere in the Sheffield Arena when Lee Wood fought Josh Warrington. There are any number of those we can call up down the years where the crowd atmosphere is such an important part of the whole package. How many times have you come away from a fight talking about the fight itself, but also about the noise. How many commentators like me in my position do you hear saying, this was one of those nights when I took off the headphones as they walked to the ring or as they were being introduced, just to feel and hear what the fans were feeling and hearing. So that is, without question, without wishing to dampen what was a very special event, that is going to be an issue moving forward. The, The crowd is such an important part of live sport.
0: Yeah, I think it's very evident. That was the main bit of feedback that I got from people in the, uh, in the pub and the local and on uh, Christmas Day. Then I popped in with my old man was, yeah, but the atmosphere was a bit flat though. So yeah, totally agree. Let's just quickly run over the event itself um, and maybe just chat about some of the fights on there. I mean, Anthony Joshua's first fight, Ben Davidson, probably couldn't have gone any better. That two-punch combination at the end of the fifth brought the one-in corner to close the fight. I mean, AJ just looked impressive from the very opening bell, didn't he?
1: He looked impressive before that, Scott. I thought during the week, for me, there were comparisons with what we saw and heard from Katie Taylor for the rematch against Chantelle Cameron in Dublin, i.e. Tetchy, not much time for even people she dealt with throughout her career in the media. And Anthony Joshua was pretty much the same during fight week. Tetchi and that attitude of just bring on that first bell. I've just had enough of all of this. I just want to get started. I just want to show what I've been going through in training and put right, not in his case, a defeat, but put right what some people were saying were subpar performances earlier in the year. And I thought it was striking that, that looking at Katie Taylor and just being around her that week and seeing the same kind of attitude from Anthony Joshua, as it stepping into the ring as if to say... There is plenty of me still left, believe me, I'm not finished, and I think that 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 showed in in the performance, and I know it's being ranked as as his best win of the year, but I I've been saying that when he fought Jermaine Franklin, it might take some time to gain the real perspective on that win. You know, I was commentating with Andy Lee for Matchroom and DAZN that night. And, and we got a heavy amount of stick online for being apparently too kind to Anthony Joshua. When some very good judges, including our own Barry Jones and others, were saying that Joshua looks like he doesn't want to be there anymore. But I think if, if you look at Joshua's performances across the year, he'll be more than satisfied, finishing with a very solid performance, which showed that some of the old Joshua is coming back. We're sitting in a room here where there's a, a fantastic poster of Joshua against Vladimir Klitschko from 2017. And that's the kind of, the, the kind of Anthony Joshua that people were, were wanting to see a return to. I think a lot of people are over overlooking his performance later on against Alexander Povetkin when he was hurt early on and still yep. showed that kind of savage mentality. People say he lost it against Anthony Joshua. Have a look at what he did a year later against, in the same arena against Alexander Povetkin got her early on still showed that if you like street smarts that street attitude to come back and do it again and so we're looking at something if not a rejuvenated then a, a fresher Anthony Joshua than we saw earlier in the year and I, I think that the confidence that he showed there and and maybe we're looking at a long-term partnership now with with ben Davison. I don't know that for sure but certainly there, there, was a, there was a different feel to him and there was a different urgency about what he did on the night.
0: If you just heard that little noise in the background now, that was a, a Matchroom global team invite that um, unfortunately going to have to swerve uh, in this case. Um, also on the night we obviously know that the plans were laid in action for Deontay Wilder to get the win and then to do a big face off in the ring but Joseph Parker had other ideas. I mean first of all How impressed were you with the game plan and ability to deliver that game plan from Joseph Parker? On the flip side, how disappointing were you with Deontay Wilder?
1: I was talking there about Anthony Joshua and Katie Taylor and how they wanted to show that they weren't finished. And I think that Joseph Parker and Andy Lee, who I've spent so much time at ringside with, would have been disturbed by the amount of conversations around March the 9th, as we were hearing for Joshua against Wilder and that Wilder would pretty much just breeze past Joseph Parker. And I actually wrote a piece for the DAZN website in the week leading up to the fight, Um, and it was a kind of historical piece, just to place it in some kind of context. And, And the opening paragraph was a paragraph from the Los Angeles Times back in January of 1990, when there was a big celebration of the fact that Mike Tyson had signed, at last to fight Evander Holyfield, a fight that had been pushed for for years and years. And finally, they'd signed to fight on June the 18th, somewhere in the United States. And a certain Donald Trump had the right of first refusal as to where it would be staged and whether it would be in one of his hotels in Atlantic City. But then, of course, a month later, Mike Tyson is beaten by James Buster Douglas in Tokyo. So the plans for Tyson against Evander Holyfield were scuppered. And I just... You know, put that in historical context and said, this has happened before in the heavyweight division. You know, there's a, there's a chance it might happen again. And, and if you start to look back now, not becoming an after-timer, but if you learn from what you see in the ring and look back at how long Wilder had been out and had, you know, barely a, yeah, a, a round. One round in three round or four in, years, yeah. and, and you look at that and then you, you start to ask then, he's 38 years of age, what did those three fights against Tyson Fury take from him? You know, when, when, you know, sure, he floored Tyson Fury, had his successes, but how much did that take from a 38-year-old man? And when he came over to the UK for the initial press conference for the Day of Reckoning, he did say that at one stage, talking to British reporters in a huddle, he said that at one stage he'd lost his love for the game. And that's not easily resurrected. Once you've done that, once you've earned the kind of money he's earned, that's not easily rediscovered. And that's just, just a quote that, again, I mentioned in this piece on the Design website, that... that Just you, little... It, yeah. just, just little seeds. Look, I, I'm not claiming for one moment I said that Joseph Parker was going to win, but there were so Science. many question yeah. marks yeah. against Deontay Wilder. And in the end, going back to you know the, the other part of your question about the, the game plan, and I remember talking to Darren Barker, who in turn had been talking to Andy Lee, because I didn't arrive in Saudi until Friday, the day before the bill and, and Darren had been talking to Andy Lee and Andy was absolutely convinced and was absolutely adamant that Joseph Parker would go at Wilder and would to use Andy's phrase fight fire with fire and Darren Barker said there's no way he's doing that he's just saying that you know to to, to yeah. get it to get it out there but sure enough he did that now he was helped by the fact that as soon as the first bell rang Deontay Wilder went on to the back foot but even so, it was a measured performance. It wasn't a performance of a man who was deathly scared of a right hand landing on his chin. It was a brave and warrior piece of, of, of bravery and courage of a man who was going to do what he had to do to scupper all these plans and to put himself firmly back in contention yeah. for a shot at the world title, whenever that may come, if if it does indeed come.
0: And on the flip side of... John Wilders, you know, round in the last couple of years, it was obviously Joe Parker's full fight of the year as well. So I'm sure that had a bearing on on things. Dimitri Bivol defended his WBA light heavyweight world title and added the IBO secondary title, if you want to call it that. Now, all eyes next week in Quebec, Canada, for Baturbeev Evan Smith. The the winners here, have got to fight Bivol, right? This is the fight we need for sort of spring summer.
1: And that's one of those fights that we're talking about, and there seems to be something like that in just about every weight division as yeah. we head into 2024. And when you've seen what happened at the day of reckoning, you just wonder whether... Look, all of these fights can't be staged in Saudi Arabia. Yep. I get that, because there's a big chunk of the year when, weather-wise, it, it, it just can't happen. I understand that, even if it is being held indoors. But you just wonder whether there's a kind of momentum being set in place here where... where the big names are meeting the big names, looking at the bigger money being made, and, and, and just looking at their own reputations, their own legacy, and whether they, they really want to make a, a special mark by taking on these huge names. And and again, are we you know, there there's a lot of talk of bivol against Peterbiev. Well what what about Callum Smith? And I'm I'm still undecided about Callum Smith in terms of what he can do at light heavyweight. I had a long chat with Dave Caldwell at one of our press conferences or weigh-ins during the year about the decision to move up in weight and how so many fighters are loath to do that for so long. And I know for Callum Smith there were so many opportunities at super middleweight, but with Dave we were talking in particular about Hopi Price, you know, who's, who's lower down the scale at the moment. But he was saying when, when Hopi moved up from super bantamweight to featherweight, he suddenly felt the crack on the pads that wasn't there previously, just that, that extra poundage, that extra relaxation from somebody who wasn't sweating away those, not last few pounds, last few ounces. And, and so um, looking at what Callum Smith has done in a much lower grade in the light heavyweight division, he does look as though he's punching even more heavily as a light heavyweight than he was down at super middleweight. What I would say was, you know, on, on the huge occasion of his career, the biggest occasion of his career against Canelo Alvarez, he came up short and a long way short. Now, how much has he learned from that big occasion? Not just night, but this time now as we're talking in the build-up, the days when, as Carl Frotz used to say to me, you put your head on the pillow and the demons of doubt appear. How do you brush those away when it's such a monumental day coming up in your career? So how he deals with all of that. He's got more than enough ability to beat Artur Biterbeev. And maybe he's younger and fresher. And and, and and that will that will seize the day for him. But it's 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 a fascinating fight. Absolutely fascinating.
0: I'm all in on Callum Smith by knockout here. It may sound strange, but I feel some of the sort of topics you just mentioned there, maybe age catching up with Patero, we have injury, I think more, more importantly, over the last year or two, coming off a jaw injury as well, sounds like it was a pretty bad one, and he has been hurt before, I think people overlook that, he's been dropped twice in his career, people just seem to just, just sort of gloss over that, so I'm obviously going to be slightly biased to, to Callum, but I, I really fancy him to cause a, a big upset, and then gets the chance to avenge the amateur defeat, to uh, Dmitry Bivol for all the, uh, all the belts, hopefully later this year. On the flip side of what we're just talking about there, and you know, glory, undisputed, and, and whatnot, I guess the contrast of that is maybe belts are becoming slightly irrelevant. And in the case of Joe Apatia, money spoke, and he decided to bin the IBF belt. I mean, it's a destructive, devastating one round um, win over the wasn't it? You was ringside commentator on that one.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I thought. I've now commentated on, on, on the last two of Opataya's fights. He's, he's very, very special. To watch him up close, really special. What I would say is, would Jai Opataya be as big a name as he is without that IBF title? He can give it up now that he's won it and won it in yep. the style that he did against Maurice Buridis. I still think, as Eddie Hearn has said quite recently, that there are still so many kids out there growing up wanting to be a world champion. And... Those belts still carry a lot of weight. That there, there will be, for a long time, more kids wanting to be a world champion than to appear on the day of reckoning. And I understand completely that it's about earning money as well as earning belts. I mean, Ellis Zorro was saying, okay, so he gets beaten in a round by Jaya Pataya. But I, th- I thought he came out with a, a very pertinent line in the build-up because he's got a, a six-year-old daughter who has autism. And he was saying that, for me, it's all about the money. And, and he used the line, belts only collect dust. And <laughs> and, and we all know of stories, of, of stories of woe, of, of, of boxers who have had great success but haven't had the money that goes with it, whether they don't have the personality, the style or whatever. And and so I, I do still think it it, it is a, a heady mix of the personality, the ability and the belt. I don't think you'd know as much about Jaya Pattaya, maybe would still be... I use the phrase advisedly, hidden away in Australia, because it's the kind of phrase he's used. If if he hadn't beaten Buridis and then come to the UK and then you know showcased his talents to a wider audience in in, in different time zones, but I still think there is there is something about the belts um, and, and and enough yep. to to you know to 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 be used as momentum for those youngsters pushing through the amateur ranks and whatever, especially with now the the jeopardy around Olympic recognition of boxing, and it might well be that you know there there's one great ambition removed from the dreams of youngsters around the world you know within the next three or four years so those those belts might become even more important, but as Nassim Hamid once said you know it's it's the ultimately it's the fighter that makes the belt but sometimes around it takes the fighter to win the belt before he can then make his name so there's there's a lot of chicken and egg sy- syndrome here
0: yeah just before we move on um just talking about upper tie there i must admit i don't think i felt a presence about any fighter in the last couple of years than i have around him he's not only scary he's also quite articulate and backs up what he says when he says something i genuinely believe him Word for word, he's, he's, there's a real, real presence about him and looking forward to seeing what they do next.
1: And it's a calmness and a, and a yep. composure. It, it's not taunting, it, it's not throwing abuse. It's just such a strong belief in what he can do. And, and, and not just verbally. I remember, as I say, being ringside when he beat Jordan Thompson, first appearance in the UK. And there was one point when Jordan Thompson, look, we know can crack a bit, hits him with a really strong shot. That's floored many of his opponents. And he just took the briefest moment. I, I spoke to Tony Bellew about this afterwards, and Tony was so impressed by that. this kind of cameo within the fight. And he, he just, just took the briefest, not even a split second, to just, OK, just to, to take on board what had happened, not necessarily rush straight back in, but show Thompson that he wasn't hurt and that he's going to get straight back on the front foot. And he did, and and that was just that little cameo there, being so close up at ringside as we're privileged to be so often, was a, was a real cracking insight into, as you say, a, a, um, a different, different performer. And you, you, you don't get that every time these foreign fighters come to our shores. Definitely.
0: Well, we've just spent the last hour or two going through a match from 2023 for a review bit of content that'll be dropping in the coming weeks before our first show. What's... Um I mean, just going through them all, you forget so many fights first and foremost. What's your standout moments from the year, Mike, from a matchroom point of view?
1: I think in terms of performance overcoming a psychological hurdle, it's the one standout memory I have. And it's not just necessarily a blowaway night in terms of the atmosphere, although it was very heady. It was Lee Wood's rematch against Mauricio Lara. And I think that, that performance that he produced after barely three months away, coming straight back into a fight against Lara when a lot of people were advising him to go somewhere else first of all. And I just thought that was such a measured performance. And I remember speaking to Lee in Newcastle for one of our, I think it was a Next Gen show, um, soon after he'd been beaten. And he was showing me on his phone, what went wrong in the first fight? Um, and I know it sounds blatantly obvious, well, what went wrong? He got caught. But he, he, he was going through the phases of how close he was to pulling off what he wanted to pull off. And it, and it just showed the, the, the jeopardy of top-class boxing. He was so close to finishing the combination that he was going for, but got beaten to the left hook by Lara. But then to come back and do what he did second time around... And I know Lara failed at the scales and, and, and maybe threw away the title in some senses in what he did in between the two fights. But psychologically, having been so badly beaten the first time around, to come back and do what he did in the rematch was really special for me. And, and, and I was looking back and, again, talking about learning lessons without being in the after-timer. Ben Davison was heavily criticised for throwing in the towel Against Lara, Because there were only eight, nine seconds to go in that round. And Ben, I remember, walked over to our commentary position and leant down and said, did I do the right thing? And, and, and I know we nodded. Um, certainly I, I nodded. Um, but even within the commentary box, there were differing opinions as to whether they should have allowed, Ben should have allowed Lee Wood to sit down for 60 seconds and then go back out for the eighth round. But in the end, did that moment save... Lee Wood not only for the rematch but for his career what about a savage beating across the 8th round what does that do for Lee Wood at his age you know and, 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 and a body that can't necessarily take that kind of battering so you know I was looking back thinking maybe Ben Davison there produced a master stroke in keeping Lee Wood fresh and that started the process for the win in the rematch and that's why I think, in, in, in terms of everything boxers have to face, he had to produce the performance physically. But imagine what he went through in those months waiting for the fight to come around. Imagine reliving the knockout defeat and then coming back to produce a, a masterclass of a, of a performance to win again.
0: It's interesting when you were saying what, what Lee showed you on his phone at that Next Gen event in Newcastle, when you, when you mentioned that, I could sort of see in my mind sitting down down the gym with Lee Wiley and Ben Davison going through analytical sort of side of stuff I think that comes back full circle to the conversation we had earlier about Anthony Joshua and bringing a new element to his game I think that will complement him very well I'm talking about Anthony Joshua three fights three wins potentially on the horizon three time world champion next year is that a fight you think we'll see with Philip uh, Hergovic
1: I'd, I'd like to think we will see that. And I think that is a very winnable fight. And maybe after Anthony Joshua's performance against Jermaine Franklin in his first fight of 2023, not many would have fancied him against Philip Ergovic when you consider what Ergovic had done against Zhilei Zhang. But again, you know, Ergovic was criticised for his performance against Zhang. A lot of people said he didn't deserve the verdict. It was tight enough. I, I wouldn't argue one way or the other. But when Zhang then came and did what he did twice against Joe Joyce, you have to revise what you've seen. You have to. That's, that's, that's the only way you can, you can judge with perspective. And you have to use those lessons. So that performance by Ergovic against Zhang now looks a whole lot better. Even if you think he lost, it still looks a whole lot better than it did at the time. And then he came back after a year and had, frankly, a lousy performance against Dempsey McKean in in, um, in one of the undercards of Anthony Joshua at the O2 Arena. But I do think he's one of these boxers who is effective without being eye-catching. And while it's easy to look at that performance, whether it's against Zhang or Dempsey McKean or most recently the the, the throwaway win against Mark De Morey, I, I I think that, that he will give Anthony Joshua plenty of trouble. I think it's a fight that Anthony Joshua wins and can look good in winning, especially with this newfound vigour and seemingly something of a return to that old attitude. And I think it's a great opportunity for Anthony Joshua to become a three-time heavyweight champion. And way back from my first interviews with him, I know how much of a student of boxing and the heavyweight division he is and what that will mean to him to join the likes of Muhammad Ali and Evander Holyfield and the others who've become a three-time world heavyweight champion. I remember being in in Saudi Arabia for the Andy Ruiz rematch and I clambered up to the ring apron to interview him. I was working for BBC Five Live at the time and I, I put my microphone towards him and I was just about to utter a question and he just screamed, two times, two times. <laughs> and it, that was so important to him. That that was re- avenging a defeat, so that was crucial too. But being a, a champion three times over, and if he was to do that and then face the winner of Usyk and Fury later in the year, then, as I said earlier, we're, we're starting to talk about potentially a, a very special year. And this time last year, we might have been quite downbeat, saying, mm. oh, these kind of fights, they never happen. But suddenly... You know, you look at what's happened over the last six months of the year, or, or even uh, you know, elsewhere in the year, with with Crawford and Spence and Garcia against Javante Davis, and you know, th- th- there are signs that that the sport as a whole, whoever it is is, 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 is triggering this momentum, is beginning to understand that that these fights have got to be made in in an ever congested international sporting calendar. These fights have got to be made if if, if boxing is is, is going to flourish.
0: For sure. And just looking ahead, back in Belfast, probably sooner than everyone expected, to be fair, kicking off our schedule domestically with Lewis Crocker against Jose Felix, who himself produced one of the knockouts and upsets of the year over Gary Cully. What was it like ringside? The atmosphere when Gary Cully was knocked out?
1: Well, this was building, of course, towards the main event and Katie Taylor against Chantel Cameron, first time around. And I do remember saying, again, this, this is not a case of being an after-timer because I didn't for one moment predict that Jose Felix would win the fight. But if you looked at his record, he'd been in a number of fights where he'd been knocked down and lost. He'd been in a number of fights where he'd been knocked down and got up to win. He'd been in a number of fights where both he and his opponent were knocked down. So they all over Felix's record was this, this, this craziness. The, the, you just absolutely knew this man was coming here to fight. And there was just this, I think I said somewhere... Near the first line of commentary, around the fact that Cully has just got to just got to keep his eye on the ball here, and not, just not to get too soon into party mode. I remember early on on the card was the heavyweight Thomas Carty, and they talked about the Carty party, and there was this great kind of feel of an Irish celebration because it was the homecoming of of Katie Taylor, and you know going back to what we we're saying there about Lee Wood and the the atmosphere on that night when he. He beat Lara in the rematch, and maybe an even better atmosphere when he fought against Josh Warrington later in the year. And you had the clash of the two sets of fans. The first fight for Katie Taylor against Shanto Cameron in Dublin was colossal, but the atmosphere at the second fight in November, when you consider that three arena holds 9,000 people, but it's got this setup where it's it's almost like a giant theatre. So you've got the ring, and unusually as a commentator, you've got virtually nobody behind you. All of the crowd is in front of you, virtually in a, in a kind of amphitheater kind of shape. And that seems to generate the most unbelievable atmosphere. I remember turning to Andy Lee sat beside me, another one of those nights where commentators take off their headphones and just listen to it. And it was one of those that actually hurt your ears. And I'm, I'm really not exaggerating it. It was kind of this this piercing, tinny sound in your ears, this almost screeching of an atmosphere and really, really special. And 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 that was after um, we, we saw some fairly tepid fights on the undercard. But going back to Gary Cully and that first night, that in the end proved to be almost like a, a an omen or, or a portent of doom of of what <laughs> yeah. was to come. You know, and, and just that that really flattened the crowd. And the whole point of, of Gary Cully being second to the main event, was was to really... Be a showcase, lift, wasn't it? ...lift the yeah. crowd, showcase, knockout win, and, and here we go then, and let's roar Katie Taylor into the ring. And so, you know, that, that was a, a massive, massive win. And we've spoken about, you know, the psychological battles that fighters have. Imagine Jose Felix walking to the ring that night, you know, when... Gary Cully has been has been serenaded by one of his best friends from from his childhood days, the big song, the big ring walk, and Felix is waiting in the ring while all this is happening, and and, and produces that kind of performance. So that this is you know again against Lewis Crocker, we we know for sure that, that Felix will turn up.
0: A few of the content guys were up in Scotland yesterday at Billy Nelson's gym with Lewis Crocker, and they were saying he looks absolutely on point already. I guess. It kind of feels short notice. I guess he probably had a couple of days off after the fight and then straight into the gym and was training over Christmas, New Year. So a very, very exciting headliner to get underway in Belfast. Another fight I want to talk to you about is the Curiel-Nonchinger match, which is happening in February. Just a couple of weeks ago now, in Monte Carlo, just three or 400 people in there. You're talking about upsets and stuff, as we have done over the last 15, 20 minutes or so. That knockout, I don't think anyone called that. No one predicted in the pre-fight build-up that Adrian Curiel was going to pull the punch that he did and become IBF world champion.
1: And you so rarely see that kind of finish down at light flyweight as it was, even at flyweight and, and super flyweight. You know, when you get to the top end of those divisions, they tend to be A, so skillful, B, so durable. And yet this shot and the right hand landed directly above our commentary position, right there above us and just the most savage crumpling of, a, of an opponent and and a man who was a long way second favourite that night um, and again produced when it mattered, on the night, kept his cool, waited for that shot, waited for Nonchinger to move on to the shot and, and pinpoint accuracy, absolutely brilliant and and such a surprise partly because it was, was in that light flyweight division and you so rarely see that kind of finish, you you see opponents being worn down but really see that kind of savage instant KO, it was absolutely brilliant.
0: Sonny Edwards has put his name in the hat to potentially fight the winner, so a little uh, interesting subplot there um, our schedule's taking shape behind the scenes, I know the the, the events guys, the matchmakers are, are cracking on and we should have some more news for you in the coming days and weeks for more events, um, obviously got Conor Benn in action, We've got Edgar Belanger against Poddy McCrory Mike, I'm going to finish off and I'm going to give you the keys to the matchmaker vehicle. You've got one fight that you can make and want to see in 2024. What would it be involving a matchroom fighter?
1: Involving a matchroom fighter, I would say, well, I'm, I'm going to be, I think here, biased in favour of the company. I'll tell you a fight I want to see at Super Featherweight. I want to see two matchroom fighters. I want to see Lee Wood against Joe Cordina. Great if fun. I can't see that, I want to see Lee Wood in the rematch against Josh Warrington. But the fight I'd love to see, because there's two such strong characters. Fascinating to see how Lee Wood copes with the move up into the super featherweight division. But Joe Cordina against Lee Wood. And I think if you you, know, you get that in Nottingham or in Cardiff and the two sets of fans going at each other, I think that could be really special.
0: Yeah, one to keep an eye on for sure. I know the, the city ground of... Um got a busy schedule obviously with the the change of season and whatnot so it's probably a limited time frame for a potential leeward homecoming but one he probably deserves after the year he's had in particular well mike thank you so much for your time today as we mentioned we've got this view of 2023 which is great and fantastic to go through and reminisce but we look forward to seeing you ringside in the coming weeks months uh, as we have no doubt another action-packed schedule for 2024 thanks for your time
1: cheers scott